Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Tim Miller, in for Charlie Sykes for the next two days. You're going to have to suffer through me, and I'm so happy to be here today with the pride of Louisville and a big... Somebody who's been very encouraging of the work that we're doing at the Bulwark, and and you know my uh, transit, my midlife crisis transition into you know writing and being a content man, uh, Perry Bacon Jr. Now at five thirty eight, formerly of MSNBC, and a bunch of other uh, a bunch of other journalistic en- enterprises. Perry, thanks so much for for joining me today. Good to be here, Tim. Yes, we, we go back a little while. Yeah, so it's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Um, so much happening in the news, um, but I, I do I do think it would be good for us to start just by stepping back um, and looking at what's happening with the Republican Party. Uh, you had a really um, interesting article um, about a week ago now that, that Jonathan Lass sort of built on um, earlier this week about... Whether or not the Republicans are having an autopsy at all, and um, you posited essentially that they aren't, and that that's abnormal. And you know, what was your you know I'm sure you're calling around on that? What was, what was your main takeaway from from that, uh, from, from writing that article, and and you know from the reporting around it? So the you know for me covering politics a long time I remember in 2009 I think my first campaign was the 04 campaign John Kerry lost of course and the Democrats had this whole like what do we do how do we mass how do we talk to evangelical voters more you know you know what about what happened on same sex marriage do we they had a whole sort of casting call what do we do next it started off with like Mark Warner and John Edwards got to find a white guy it, it ended up on Barack Obama who I never would have guessed we the person But there was a four year, Obama actually talked about religion and the role it needed to have in politics more. So even he was part of that kind of soul searching. You know, fast forward 2009. uh, One of my, you know, I I was at the Post then and I wrote one of the big articles on how Michael Steele was coming to run the Republican Party. Now he had this big vision for change because the party just lost. 2013, of course, the Republicans literally basically called their document the autopsy. Here's how we're going to change the party because okay, we lost. Okay, Perry, I just need to fact check you there. Since I was at the RNC and I worked yeah. on that, we called it the Growth and Opportunity Project. Y'all called it the autopsy. Yes, right. So that was bad, bad branding yeah. on our end, yeah. probably. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. I, I just said it in the piece. So I remember that now that you said it. And then, instead, and then after 2016, you had a big fight between sort of a bunch of, you know, four or five different factions in the Democratic Party all saying, here's why Hillary lost, um, and, and, and so on. So after 2020, so anyway, the point I'm making is usually a party after it loses a presidential, it's just like it does two things. One, it trashes the person who lost. Romney and Hillary Clinton were trashed by people in their party. And two, there's a real public discussion about why the party lost and what it needs to change to go forward. And after 2020, that has not happened. Donald Trump is praised publicly by most Republicans in Congress, most Republican leaders, in public at least. And the party has not had a big effort to discuss publicly at least how to change directions or what direction to change. In fact, there's been a few autopsies done since the election. It's been the Democrats who want a trifecta studying why they did poorly with Latino voters compared to 2016. So the Democrats are having a public study. They won. The Republicans are having no study. They lost. That's fairly unusual for modern politics. 
Well, I do. I do. I need to correct you on one point. I, I don't think that you recall the um, the people that were wearing berets and carrying the John <laughs> Kerry flag, uh, storming the Capitol. You don't remember yeah, that in, uh, in remember the winter that. of two thousand and four? No, I, I, I do think they tried to turn the page from Kerryism. Um, well, I, like, so I, I we talked for this article, and I, I and my, and my basic take was that the, the the an autopsy isn't happening because um the the Republican party uh looked at the increase in turnout among Trump voters they feel captivated uh captured rather by you know having to to draw support from Trump voters uh and you know, they they think that the only path forward basically is um by continuing to juice the the same voters that Trump turned out and kind of hoping that, you know, either uh, Trump himself uh, or, um, uh, you know, the the sort of competent Trump, if you will, the great oxymoron of our time, um, you know, can come <laughs> and and minimize the Democratic vote in the future. Uh, they've got this benefit in the Senate. They've got this, you know, kind of bias in the Electoral College that's benefiting their current coalition. So so why change? Um well, uh, was that uh, was that the consensus view when you were talking to folks, or were there other things at play? So the consensus view was something like that, or the way I framed it was the Republicans almost won. Is that they get you know the you know the Democrats talk a lot about how the, the Republicans are counter majoritarian, the majority's with us, but it's a fairly slim majority. Like Biden won fifty one forty seven, he didn't win fifty five forty three. So I think so. A lot of people said basically the Republicans kind of almost won this way. And like you said, that you know, some combination of redistricting, gerrymandering, the Senate and the Electoral College giving Republicans the advantage, um, you know, the midterm effect, which usually the party in power loses the midterms. All that stuff means the Republicans can probably win the House in 2022, maybe the Senate, and have a great chance in the presidency in 2024 without really changing anything. But the thing that I think is most important is, and I think is most important is, the people who have real power in the Republican Party don't want to change. And what I would say, I would say it's not the Mitch McConnell people and Mitch, Kevin, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, I think, were open to changes. I think if you look at the polling, a, there's a big block probably between a third and a half of Republican voters who don't love Trumpism are open to changes. But I think if you look at the sort of activist core, what I mean by that is like, Fox News and the people who watch it, the Club for Growth people and the people who fund that, the sort of people who run state and local parties who, when Liz Cheney wanted to support impeachment, went after her, the people who are primarying people who say anything bad about Trump. That to me, that middle layer of the Republican Party, sort of between McConnell and McCarthy and the rank and file voters, I think is where, where the real power is. And those people really don't want to change. And there's no real counter forces to force them to change. And that's what I think is driving this the most you might disagree but that's where i think the, no, the I, biggest tension yeah. no this is this bottom up versus top down theory of political power um that that is absolutely right in the in the modern day i mean look I, when i was uh uh I, I wrote a longer piece for rolling stone during the campaign uh, i think it was right after the um uh, the Lafayette Square incident, and I asked all these strategists, "Why aren't your candidates distancing from him?" I mean, it's just it was so unconscionable what he did, so inexcusable. It's going to kill you in the suburbs. Like his numbers are tanking, so it's kind of his low water mark um, during the campaign and, and polling numbers. Why aren't they they distancing? And one of these strategists basically said, "Look, I, this is different." 
you know, the, the, the types of voters that are leaving Trump are different than the types of voters that were leaving Bush you know, in 06 when his numbers were tanking, right? Like, the, the, like Bush was losing water across the board, right? Everybody, everybody, and he was already, he was already bottomed out with black voters, but every other class of voter he was going down with, right? Um, you know, every demographic and, you know, that included Republican based voters. Um, Trump was, is whole, is still holding, you know, and this was this guy's quote, like Saddam Hussein level approval ratings among, Republican base voters in rural and exurban areas, um, you know, in the South and and in you know the Midwest, and so uh, the the calculus is different, right? Like these are the voters that have the power within the party. You know, if if Trump, I saw a poll yesterday, still has um, eighty three. It was this North Carolina Senate poll that had Lara Trump. <laughs> You know, declaring prima nocta on the Senate, North Carolina Senate seat and winning, she's in first place in this poll. But Trump had eighty three percent approval. You know, if if eighty percent of the of the party still likes him, uh, you know, what's galvanizing the twenty going to do? And so, you know, you have to respond to 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 the you know where the power and where the energy is within the party. I do think the sort of and not anti-Trump, but sort of Trump skeptical. When I look at all these polls, I see, like I said, like some 25%, 30%, maybe 40% of people who are Republicans, but are sort of ready to move on from Trump. And Mm -hmm. I do think that 40%, that 30% number is kind of underrepresented, particularly in the House. I think Mm -hmm. the Senate is probably there, particularly in Republican state parties, particularly on Fox News. Like, I think if, like, if you watch MSNBC, during the last four years, you certainly had some anchors who were closer to the AOC point of view, but you certainly had Morning Joe and people like that who were like, oh, pull back a little bit. We don't want to go that far to the left versus I don't see the sort of countervailing forces like if Evan McMullen or the Bulwark had like four hours on Fox to give a different version of Republicanism, that would make a difference. I think it would then become like an organizing. Imagine if like Jeb, Mitt Romney, pick a, you know, Will Hurd, got shows on Fox. That would not change the whole party. I think that would give more of a space for an alternative. And I think more people would be like, oh, there is an alternative. Because right now I feel like, even though I, I know, you know, I, because I'm a journalist and I was in Washington a long time, I know a lot of kind of Trump skeptical anti-Trump Republicans. I'm not sure those people really have much voices in the culture except in the elite publications read by left-wing people. Like Jennifer Rubin is an important person, but the Washington Post and its editorial, you know, opinions pages are probably not read by a lot of rank-and-file Republicans in Kentucky. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's the theory behind Republican voters against Trump, right? And it was why we were to trying to take real people and putting ads of, of of their kind of peers in front of them, people that looked and sounded like them. Because no, you're 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 absolutely right. And this is my pushback always when people are like, "You're still obsessing over Trump at the bulwark," and I'm like, it, "Trump voters aren't listening to the bulwark," you know. And <laughs> and, and and even that comp- that complaint about CNN, which I think was valid in 2015. I don't. I don't know that that really matters that much right now, right? I mean, I mean the 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 voters that um, are, are that Trump still appeals to are already getting, oh, you know, a, a deluge of Trump content, you know, on Fox and Newsmax and OAN and you know all their various you know right wing websites, and it's not like Trump is struggling for oxygen there, and that's where they're they're. That's where they're getting their information about. Okay, I want to talk about Fox more in a second, but but J- Jonathan Last is as is his nature um, went a little darker than you um, uh, on the Republican autopsy, and 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 he basically posited a theory that that is um, 
Uh, yes, the, 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 it is correct that there is not an autopsy that is that is maybe reflecting on how Republicans can do better with certain voter classes. But there is an autopsy that is looking into how they can cheat better. And, <laughs> you know, he cited, um, uh, you know, the purging of, uh, you know, the, the few election officials who stood up to the big lie, um, you know, uh, Vangeveld in Michigan, how uh, Raffensperger might, you know, get primaried, um, et cetera, et cetera, Liz Cheney. Um, uh, and you know, the uh, voting law changes going on throughout the country um, and, you know, basically galvanizing a more popular will and popular support for, you know, taking elections through minority control, whether that be as as Bush did in 2000 and Trump in 2016 through through the Electoral College or even more extreme measures, which is what Trump was pushing for through the state legislatures. What was your your kind of take on that, which is that that they are making some changes, but it's about it's not about how to attract voters, but about how to cheat. It was kind of what you said in my piece to me. And when I read it, I was like, hmm, I wish I had written that story. You know, I mean, because <laughs> I think that was actually, it was a little more alarmist, but it was probably more accurate as well. Or my story was probably accurate, but it was a little more looking ahead. I think that's exactly yeah. right, is that the, the, particularly the focus on the state legislators, like some of these states are getting closer and closer to implying that if the state, the state legislator will basically... Our secretary of state, who's a Republican in some of these states, will not certify the results or maybe somebody in the counties will not certify the results. Therefore, there's no winner declared. Therefore, the state legislator can choose the winner and a control by Republicans. They can choose the Republican winner as the president. I thought that was a very well done piece. And it looks like what we're saying. Like I said, I was trying to say in my pieces, there's not a public forward forward-looking autopsy saying we lost this way. Like no Republican is going out saying our plan is to win elections through the state legislators. They're not well, saying they're, that. But they're I, saying yeah. they won. Right. Because they're saying <laughs> they won. They right. actually won. Yeah. But, they, but they're actually moving toward that model. Although one thing I would say is it's not like a lot of the a lot of the changes in the electoral laws are happening in places like Iowa and even places like Montana where the Republicans won pretty clearly. So I do think part of these election law changes are to rig the system, but part of them are just to appeal to the base and to appeal to Trump. Like once you went around the country and said everything's a lie, everything is, you know, the election system is rigged, I think you have to do some of these laws just because you have to because you've been saying everything is screwed up. So I do think I think some of the policies of, of the implementing the big lie into law are about election rigging and cheating. But some of them are just they have to do that now because they've said if you created this huge problem that there's all this fraudulent voting, you have to pass something. Yeah, and that's what I mean, I think that this is the big, you know, um element about this Georgia debate, you know, that that folks, you know, can miss. Because even Gabriel Sterling, who has come out and said that you know the left and and the cor- corporate America and the media is overplaying like the the merits of what's happening in this bill. You know, even he in those interviews has admitted that the only reason that it is happening in the first place is basically because you know this, these Republicans Georgia state legislators feel like they have to do something right like they're they're pressured to do something and then you know and then you know you have the whole gamut of people in the legislature from your true believers who actually think it was rigged, uh, you know, to your racists who actually want to uh, suppress votes to, to people who are just, you know, responding to their, to their, uh, you know, marketers re- responding to their customers. Right. And so, you know, I, I just, that, that 
you know, can't be kind of missed in all this? I don't, I mean, have you guys looked at all at just like kind of the data or do you have a sort of broader sense about just this kind of how widespread this, this kind of belief is that the, that there is legitimate fraud and that these folks I think have it's to, a, I think the polling I've seen is just the majority of the Republicans. This is, this is a question that's hard to poll though, because right. once it becomes like a part of the Republic, being a part of being a Republican is hating the media now, but we have a lot of evidence that we have a lot of evidence that people that say they hate the media actually do when a big incident happens. Like if, a, if like, you know, they do watch ABC, like they watch CNN or ABC news when, when the George Floyd thing happens, they do trust the media on the sort of big stories. They just don't know, like maybe like, like a, a, a something less, less racialized would be a better example. But anyway, they do sure. trust the media on these sort of like, is there COVID? Does COVID exist? They will track the media for that kind of thing in the same way that, so, you, so when you do a poll and ask people, do you trust the election results? You're kind of asking them which party they're in too. And so right. um, they're going to give, so you may not, so you, the polls show a majority of people who are, who say they're Republicans don't trust the election results. I think some of that is true. And some of that is kind of like, sort of like, um, so saying, you know, sort of asking signaling. which the party is signaling. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So I just, uh, I, I want to kind of move on and, and take the, you know, kind of lens back on the, on, on this sort of voting rights discussion. And um, I'll sort of let you drive a little bit because there's just so much going on right now you know, ac- across multiple vectors with the racial reckoning that's happening in the country. And, and I think that this is obviously undergirding the, um, the, the debate and the passion around voting rights. Um, you know, we have right now, obviously ongoing the, uh, the Derek Chauvin trial and, um, you know, just, uh, the, the, with the Dante Wright, uh, murder yesterday and the arrest or, or Dante Wright murder earlier this week and, and, and the arrest of the officer yesterday. Um, and, and, you know, kind of this racial, how, how do you say it, maybe this sort of social justice um, awakening kind of on the left that's that's in some, in some ways, you know, uniting and otherwise kind of dividing, you know, this debate of the left. What, like, what do you attribute to, you know, all of all of these, you know, kind of you know, increased, you know, racial tensions, you know, increased racial awakenings to you know that are all ha- converging at the same time in our politics and, and i just i think it's so interesting that it happened after you know the first black president right so like you would have you know maybe imagined or i would have maybe and so this is something i missed that that these are things that 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 obama would have brought to the fore right like the the, the the would have been a backlash against him the fact that he was in there and obviously there was some of that and that you know hit you know based on his perspective he would have raised the salience over some of these things and and, and it was but but it, it just feels so much hotter right now and and i and i do think it's driving a lot of you know the the changes in our politics and the motivation in our politics so, so we'll, just from the biggest possible picture sense so we can kind of drill down on these things what's your What's your view on kind of the why? Okay, so my sense is that 2008, I would say I, a black person, even sort of was like, oh, Obama won. This is like a symbol that the level of racism in America has went down at a pretty large level. I think we sort of knew. You did You, you know, did feel that way? I did personally? feel that, Yes, me personally. Yes, I did feel that, I would say, in 2008. Like, you know, we had already seen, like, hey, we had, you know, Michael – 
Uh, you should not judge culture based on celebrities. That said, you know, we had Michael Jordan, we had Oprah, we, and then you know, we had in the, in the rest of the culture, I think culture often drives politics. And so we had the rest of the culture, certain black people were being accepted. And I think there was a sense, my sense was there was a broader acceptance happening. Obama won. And I did think we were moving toward a, a place where maybe we'd have a black Republican president next. There would be, it would sort of sweep in more tolerance and maybe some racial tension would go down. And there was all, there were always going to be questions about the economics, which is like, even though Obama won, the economic data obviously showed, even back then, that the average Black person had much less income and wealth. But I actually did have a lot of optimism about how he won. And I, you know, I just, I'm just speaking for myself. My parents, yeah. I remember, were very much like, is he going to win? Even on the day before the election, I told mom, every poll says he's up by seven points. You should just plan a party for tonight. Are you sure? <laughs> My parents were A, worried that he's going to win, wasn't going to win. That you know, the, They didn't necessarily know the Bradley effect, but they were just sort of generally nervous are white people lying about this? Are they really going to vote for a black person? And then my parents throughout the camp, my mom particularly was worried. A lot of black people were worried that he would be shot during the campaign. That was a continual right. worry. I think Michelle Obama talked about this publicly too. That was a continual worry about him being shot. Would he make it through MLK thinking about, you know, black leaders and what's happened to them. So I'll be honest, 2010 tea party, 2009, 2010 tea parties, things really get heated you know, a lot. Then the older black folks were really like, it's racism. We told you. I was sort of like, eh, healthcare bill, really broad. They are moving left. I'm open to both these points of view. I sort of, and then when the birther stuff really heated up, then it became more, it probably took me longer than it probably should have. And maybe because I was in that DC bubble myself to understand, okay, there is a, I think Colin Powell, there were people who were in that bubble too, were saying, okay, there is, it's not that all people who opposed to Obama are racist. It's just that there are a lot, there is a lot, there is more racism than maybe we should anticipate, maybe we anticipated this, this driving some of what's happening here. So I think to, by 2015, it looks, you know, I think Black Lives Matter was able to become so strong in part because of videos, what happened, the idea that Michael Brown was left in the ground, but all on the ground for so long in Ferguson, but and also because of the police shootings that were seen around the town, but also because I think that in, in the black community, there was a sense that Obama had struggled in part because of racism and Obama had not been able to overcome the the sort of racial problems in the country either. And so the fact that a Black Lives Matter movement emerged while a black person was president, I don't think was an accident. I don't think it was a critique of him, but I think it was a critique of the system and, a, and, a, and an illustration of the limitations that he faced and could not overcome. And so I think there was an initial Black Lives Matter movement that was really mostly hmm. about black people, um, particularly younger black people saying the system is really strong. What I think happened with Trump is that he sort of accelerated that um, feeling that there was racism in the country and sort of brought white liberals along. So I think by the time Trump ran, the way he ran, the way he won, and we started seeing that in the data in like 2017 was when I started seeing, um, when you asked, I think Pew asked this question of, do black people have equal rights to and equal opportunities to white people? In the Obama era, like most black people had said no, but even some black people said yes, there is equal rights. But about but most white Democrats, about half of white Democrats thought black people basically had equal opportunities and rights as white people. By 2017, that had changed. The black number who felt there was commission had went up slightly, but it was already very high. But the white Democrat number went from like 50 to 78 in that period from 2015, 2018. And that, so I think that 
Trump really drove a lot of white people to sort of, you know, they sort of woke them up, so to speak, about racial issues in the country combined with Black Lives Matter. So you carry that forward. Trump is behaving in a racist way, often making that more explicit. People who feel like they hate Trump um, feel like being on the right side of the issues means they have to be sort of more lefty on racial issues, particularly. And I think that led to the and then I think the COVID thing really adds up to where, you know, people have been talking for a long time about systemic racism. But then the data really shows that a a, you know, a a virus comes to the country and it hits black people in very clearly in barely in clear numbers more black people are affected so i think the trump effect combined with covid combined with george floyd combined with black lives matter already existing all four of these things sort of came together and i think that's where we are now where you have at this point in the world's history i think being a democrat in america sort of almost first means I'm a person who cares about racial justice and racial equality. I think it, I think the Democratic Party in many ways is now sort of more anti-racism than it is populism. Yeah, I, I, look, there's so much that I want to talk about. I, I, but I completely agree with that and, and to the point where I actually think the, the you know, sort of negative of that statement is true, which is that a lot of people are basically saying, you know, that, that they say that I, you know, I cannot be, you know, a Republican because right. I think that racism is a problem in this country, you know, and, and I think that just looking at my peer group, um, uh, which is like sort of uh, and, younger Republicans, right? right? Yeah, which is like yeah, younger, yeah, thirty something, you know, elder millennial Republicans, if you will. Um, you know, the the switch from them to urban urban dwelling f- from from being kind of you know either soft Republicans or swing voters. I'm not talking about like, my political friends, my high school and college friends. Um, yes. To to almost unanimously voting for Joe Biden. Um, was driven almost entirely by this. I mean, it was also just because Trump's an insane person, right? But, 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 you know, um, you see in their kind of social media posts and their commentary a just a much more uh, visible awareness of the problem of racism, uh, much more wanting to make sure that the, it is, you know, uh, uh, both, you know, kind of in the signaling way, but I think also in a genuine personal way that they are kind of reckoning with this and, 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 you know, and, you know, siding, you know, in this, in this sort of fissure in this country with the side that says, no, racism is a problem. We have to deal with this and I cannot be on the side, um, you know, that, that is either, you know, in the best case, diminishing it as a problem or, you know, in many, in in many cases, actually kind of inflaming, inflaming the problem. Um, And so I I think that has driven a big part of the shift of the kind of suburban white Republican, you know, sort of culturally, um, you know, whatever globalist, culturally urban kind of Republican vote to, to switch the democratic party. And I think that like the kind of the red dogs that I wrote about a lot, a lot of them, uh, I think are driven by this, but, and, and I think that a lot of them had, you know, and for me, just speaking for myself, you know, the same experience as you though, I, you know, I, 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 you're not black. I get it. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. I guess I'm just saying it's not the same experience in that I, I guess I was not aware of the racist problems before okay. Obama to the same degree as you. Yeah. But, but, it's, but the same experience of Obama being elected and thinking, oh, man, things are great. You know, like I don't have to worry about this at all. And so I was totally blind. I feel I feel like I was totally, I, I was totally blind. So this is what uh, this is not the same experience. I was totally blinded by this, like right after two thousand and eight. And and I think that a lot of my my peers felt that way too, right? And, and that and that this has been you know kind of a big 
wake up call, so to speak, you know, over over the last 10 years. So I, I guess my question to you is like, is did Trump it was was this an inevitable, you know, sort of change in mindset over, you know, that over that time period among white voters, do you think? Um, or do you think that like just the kind of grotesque you know, behavior of Donald Trump and just how, you know, ham-handedly bigoted he is, um, you know, sort of created some of this that that maybe that maybe would have been, you know, continued to be, you know, um, you know, happening mostly in kind of left wing or, you know, sort of more, um, you know, diverse communities. That's a good question. So part of it is like, the Republican Party has always, you know, the Southern, we can talk about, there's always been elements of this kind of anti-Black sentiment in Republican sure. circles and maybe in Republican leadership circles at times. So where that, so to me, there was like a seminal moment. I remember, you know, I think I, I saw you a lot around this time in 2015, where it became clear to me, oh, Jeb and Marco Rubio, if they win, we might, you know, we, we were, we're seeing to me maybe the last remnants of a really kind of anti-black, you know, racist approach to Republican politics. And now we're in a primary to where this is the issue now. And Jeb and, um, and uh, Rubio are really on one side, in my view of it, and Trump particularly is on the other side of it. And I, I found myself being, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter, I'm trying to be objective, but I found myself being like, oh, boy, Jeb winning would be a relief over Trump. You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> or like in the sense of being a black person in America, knowing what it might be like if this person is president, I was a little nervous about that. And then kind of what I thought would I, I do think there was a line of demarcation where I'm not saying Jeb's not a liberal. I'm sure Jeb would do things I disagree with, things other black people disagree with. But Jeb on those racially sort of Jeb, you could tell, imagined a multiracial country and a multiracial democracy and seemed very comfortable with that. Marco Rubio, I think, was more comfortable particularly then, particularly then as well. And so I think that. I don't think without, I think Trump clarified racial issues for a lot of people. It's like, you know, like, you know, I live in Kentucky now. I grew up, Kentucky's, Louisville's a pretty segregated city in a lot of ways. And I I know a lot of white people I grew up with sort of didn't really understand. You know, we talked about racial issues. We talked about there's a racial divide, but that was all sort of theoretical to them. They had some black friends. They sort of, they didn't necessarily go to the black areas, but, but they didn't really understand it. And I think Trump, the way he talked about racial issues, go back to your country. He talked about immigration. Yeah. Just the way he framed it, I think, clear, like you said, clarified, there's two sides of this and I want to be on the right side of this, I think became, I think without Trump, you don't have this kind of reckoning. No, I think Trump, and I, I'm not saying that necessarily that, that I'm not saying there wouldn't be racial discussions because we had Black Lives Matter when Obama was president too. If Jeb is president, do we have police shootings? Of course. Do we have discussions yeah. of that? Of course. But I think that the core divide and how it became the center of our politics. Now I feel like every issue in politics is sort of, every issue was always racialized, but I would say politics is about race right now. And I don't think that would have happened except for a Donald Trump being the president. Yeah, it's interesting you said because I, you know, I just think like uh, talking about my own blind spots, like looking back to Ferguson, and you know, like it just that like the outrage over that, you know, while there was definitely some, particularly in left wing circles in 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 white America, like really felt like this, you know, kind of outrage that was emanating from Black America that like my peer group was kind of separate from, you know, in a way in in a way that that changed between then and. 
and George Floyd. And, 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 you know, when I look back and, and when you're, it's interesting hearing about your kind of conversations growing up in Louisville, I think about that Louisville, uh, I think about that growing up in Denver is, you know, like I'm, I, I'm born in, in 81, right? So the, you know, to me, like Martin Luther King and the civil rights fights and, you know, John Lewis and all this stuff felt like history, you know, yes. growing up, like it felt like it was in the past, and this was something that you studied in the history books the same way, like you studied the revolution, right? Like it really, it really did to me growing up. And, and I think about that now. I think, about, I think about like the the equi- that's like the equivalent of my daughter of like nine eleven, right? She's born in twenty eighteen, right? So like nine eleven is to her as Martin Luther King and the civil rights fights were to me, and and and. Now, obviously, kind of you know, all of the issues related to nine eleven and the in the Iraq War and all that feel very much not like history to me, but like present, right? And, and I think that the what had happened with Trump really did kind of open up, you know, a lot of you know folks in my camp's eyes to to the fact that this is a pre- this is not a history problem, but it's a present problem. And I and one thing I want to emphasize is this is politics is racialized it's not necessarily racial like you know like a lot of people were surprised that trump you know didn't i guess he went from nine to eleven or whatever a small number of black voters he increased the number of black voters he had a meaningful game with latino voters and also white men were the group that most switched to biden from trump i think that you know right. i know that jumped out at people that did not necessarily surprise me and any sort of is that like racial attitudes and and people's races are not entirely connected. And what I might say is there are plenty of, there is not a huge number, but there are some black people who have sort of negative views about black people who sort of have racial views closer to Donald Trump than Joe Biden or to, or to Barack Obama for that matter. There are Latinos who have racial views that are more conservative, which mean, you know, when you, when you talk about the police in particular, once 2020 became a debate about who you know is BLM right or, or the police right? That definitely was going to split people by racial attitudes, but not necessarily by race. There are plenty of people in law enforcement who are black and Latino who who thinks those that that law enforcement is good and most and is unfairly demonized. So I think what we're what we're also going through is I, I try to is that people are learning about race more in America. And I think that's good, but I think we're, you know, we've got to get to a more sophisticated conversation, which is that it is not always, there are black conservatives, period. There always were. Sure. All black people are not liberal. They mostly do vote for Democrats, but, that, but that's more because of the history of the Republican party on race. And I think if a, you know, a sort of more a Larry Hogan, Condi Rice, Tim Scott style person ran for president and sort of ran on a pretty moderate, sort of a, a moderate platform on racialism, I think they would get more than the 10% of black votes. I think, cause I think these groups are all sort of movable because we're all like, we all have a race, but it's not necessarily a sign, but our politics are, are more about our racial attitudes than our race. And those things are the same, but like the most, the people who are reading, you know, cast and how to be an anti-racist are the leading books on the bookseller list. That's not black people buying those books. That's mostly right. white liberals buying those books to sort of get right on racial. I don't condemn them for buying it, but that's who's buying those books. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just want to kind of uh, clarify one thing on, on points you're making just on the different, on the white men move, moving to Biden, just since this is what we were kind of analyzing and in, in, in with Arvat. Th- this isn't surprising to me all just when you kind of think about this anecdotally because there's also sexism at play too right and right. like the idea sure. that you know if you're a white suburban you know kind of 
you know, red dog or soft Republican or, you know, kind of uh, Republican who, um, you know, might be gettable swing voter. Um, you know, your wife voted probably for Hillary last time. Um, you know, you had, you know, been demonized, you know, the Fox News and Republican campaigns and me had been demonizing the Clintons and Hillary for years. And so you kind of bought into all of that. And, you know, there's this kind of latent sexism and, you know, but boy, that's a big jump to make you vote for go from Mitt Romney to Hillary Clinton. And then, you know, then after four years of the Donald Trump's um, just out, uh, just horrific behavior and, you know, having to hear about it from your wife and your kids and your friends. And <laughs> it's like, then Joe Biden, you know, Uncle Joe comes along and like, that's a much softer landing spot, right? For these, uh, for, for kind of white college educated men, which were the big kind of moving groups. I, I didn't end up being surprised by that. I, I, I just, before we move off, I, I want to talk about the Democratic Party, but I, I just, uh, this is maybe a little transition into it. Your point about having this more sophisticated conversation on race, I, I do think that among, for lack of a better term, the kind of the bulwark crowd, um, you know, I, I think that that it's it's much more, um, uh, you know, kind of open to kind of hearing these social justice arguments and changing their views. And you know, I hear from a lot of people, you know, who are both you know kind of write and read for us who who ha- who have kind of evolving and awakening views on the matter but but there also is a pushback to mm-hmm. you know kind of what is ha- you know some of the excesses of the social justice left and you know wokeism or whatever it is um you know you see some of this you know manifesting itself on campus but also on campaigns you know um you know there's this kind of discussion you know that David Shore and others have been pushing about how you know that democratic campaigns are you know, maybe a little bit too, you know, campus race, um, you know, critical race theory or, you know, uh, organized and, you know, talking to Latinx voters when it's only, you know, white liberals at Amherst that say Latinx and not actually Latino voters who say that. Like, what, what, what's your take on the, on on what's happening in the left and whether there's whether that's a realistic concern or whether we're missing something when we kind of criticize that overreach? So... So I okay. So there's a lot of a lot to unpack here. So I guess yeah, I would, I'm going to give two thoughts here. The first is can you in one minute give me all of your <laughs> thoughts on critical race theory, Perry? Uh, you know, which I can't explain. I've got a hard to explain it. Even. Um, so I think it, like elections are really hard. So I'm not I'm not convinced that necessarily like the slogan deep. Obviously, my my point might be Democratic candidates probably should not call for defund the police, but I don't think a ton of them were. So I mean, so it's like I don't. It's not clear to me exactly how the Democratic Party can tell act like the the Democratic elected officials who said defund the police. Nancy Pelosi should have a meeting with them and say, "I would prefer you not say this." And I and I and I think I gather she's doing that. But in terms of like activist groups, like Fox News can take whatever they want to from anybody anywhere in America who is part of some group that's the socialists of Orange County or wherever and say Democrats think X. So I think in terms of like I uh, it's going to be hard, like the, the genie's out of the bottle. You now have a lot of social justice activists who are who are at the local level, the Twitter level, et cetera, who are going to say whatever they want to say and who are pushing forward. And that's just a new part. And, you know, we now have Twitter. So everybody's opinions about anything can be on Fox News or even for that matter, ABC News or 538 in, you know, one minute after they say them. So I think that sure. is going to be hard to put in the genie. But it's going to be harder for the Democratic Party to control. It's more like 80 million people voted for Biden. It's going to be hard hard for those 80 million people to be restrained from making controversial comments in public. I do think (laughs) that overall, 
there's two things that happen that are important. One is that I don't love the phrase Overton window shifting generally, but I think this idea that the police are a problem and we need to have real aggressive reforms of them and maybe that they should have some funding reallocated to social services. I think if you phrase that idea the way I phrased it, that idea actually is not particularly unpopular and in some cases popular. And so I do think the discussion about sort of racial, like reparations is not currently popular, but if you phrase it in terms of we're going to give housing vouchers to people who discriminate against their housing, that's more popular. So I think the left-wing activism on policy issues often is responding to real inequality and if framed well can have useful ideas. Now the discourse on Twitter about Latinx, I do think this sort of, I'm I want to I'm I'm skeptical of like how many people are actually losing their jobs because of cancel culture. But do I but did I look at the Teen Vogue thing and think then think that was a great example of American discourse? No, I did not. <laughs> I mean, my general view is my general think of, take on cancel culture whatever we're talking about is this is that I think we're really debating is what are you allowed to say in our culture? And more importantly, what are the consequences of it? And I would say, one, we've always had evolving debates about what is acceptable. Like in 2007, Barack Obama was against gay marriage. In 2020, basically nobody wants to be acceptable society says they're against gay marriage. So standards always evolve and we always think about that. But to me, the question is, what should the punishments be for violating those? And I'm just a person who believes in forgiveness and apologies and yeah. you should be accountable but there not shouldn't be a lot of death sentences i'm very aware of the idea anyone should be fired from any job for what they say on twitter or their political opinions if you're going around calling people the n-word all the time that's one thing but nobody's <laughs> really doing that that i see and so to me the standard for i think it's more in an, an employment context to be I just wish employers were less eager to demote or fire people because there was a PR controversy over somebody's tweet. It's just like your job should not be contested or you should not be removed from it because of what you tweet if it's sort of an, in the range of normal opinions. That's kind of how I feel about it. It's like we should just stop firing people and for, for things they say on Twitter. Um, yeah, it does feel like sometimes that the anti, uh, you know, PC right, um, really, it all just does come down to the fact that they still wish they could make racist jokes, you know, and not get in trouble for it. Um, you know, sometimes this debate feels like it, it, it uh, limits to that. Um, I, I do want to talk about the Democrats, but I think you mentioned the Overton window on the left. We would be remiss if we just didn't really quick. Uh, you know, kind of add on this point that the Overton window on the right, you know, like we're going opposite directions, yes, right, on right. the race thing. Right. And the fact that Tucker Carlson this week is literally calling for white replacement theory, you know, and saying that that's not such a you know bad idea. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump, I remember people don't recall this from 2016, um, uh, you know, for whatever reason, because he has so many outrages. But but when he was attacking Jeb over his wife, um, you know, being being uh, from Mexico and then that affecting Jeb's view on immigration, he retweeted a, a, a this account that the account was literally at white genocide and then some number like, you know, like this is the theory that 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 like white people are being eliminated um, by you know immigrants who are coming into the country, brown and black immigrants who are like sleeping with you know white women and you know kind of ending the right white white race. The the president tweeted some somebody whose handle was promoting this theory, right? And so I, I do think that Trump did open up the over. You know, it's hard to imagine you know a Fox primetime host you know, in, in alternate Earth B where Marco is president, like talking about the problems of what, you know, of, of, of the need for 
you know, to, to take seriously white replacement theory and the, and their concerns about white genocide, right? Like you have with Tucker. And, and, and I think that it is really notable that, that after the election, after the insurrection, where Fox could have pivoted back towards, you know, hey, guys, like we need to put the, put the bumpers back on this. And, and you've seen the opposite, like the wheels totally off, uh, to mix my metaphor there. It's terrifying. That's yeah. all I would say. Um, Nothing uh, literally to say. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. Horrifying. Okay. To the de- to the Democrats before we leave. Um, you wrote a. It was. It's been a while now, but it it was super. I, I think prescient. Um, back during the Democratic primaries, a, an article about how, uh, my my people, uh, the Never Trumpers, um, you know, might end up actually having more of an impact on what is the discourse in the democratic party than they have in the Republican. Like we're so weak and, uh, and so, you know, minimized within our own I party. I think so bluntly, but I, that's what I think. Yes. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very weak that we were so cucked by the Donald Trump, uh, MAGA, MAGA Chad wing of the party, uh, that we had no influence left, but that, that, but that I, I think that you were really the first kind of to observe something that I was kind of secretly noting, but not saying out loud. <laughs> which was that that there w- it was having some impact on what was happening in the, in the Democratic Party and kind of shaping that coalition a bit, you know. And meanwhile, you know, you have kind of the other, you know, this other group within the Democratic Party, which is you know on a, on policy matters that's really kind of pushing kind of stealthily, you know, in some ways, Joe Biden to the left, um, unstealthily in other ways. Um, like what? What you know? You know, kind of take take on either one of those sides of of what's happening in the party first, and, and we'll cover both. So I thought the the never Trump group, and I guess I don't know how intentional it was, but I just thought it was fascinating. I don't know if it was intentional or what, but MSNBC and the Washington Post and CNN around 2016, 2017, went away from hiring. You know, for a while, what was the guy? They, for a while, they were sort of hiring Jeffrey the, Lord. Jeffrey and, Lord is what I'm thinking yeah. about. Yes, Jeffrey Lord. They were, for a while, they were hiring these sort of crazy, I'm for Trump no matter what defenders and who were bad guests on TV and just terrible. But then they went to hire a lot of people like Jennifer Rubin, like Bill Kristol, um, who were on TV, featured a lot prominently, the sort of never Trump crowd. And and once those people got a foothold, I began to think, oh, you know, Democrats are obsessed with Nicole Wallace being a good example. Democrats are obsessed with finding an electable candidate. So obviously they're going to look for who the Republicans like and will vote for, the ex-Republicans will like and vote for. And yeah. so and, and, and I could also tell that by 2018, it was obvious to me that the never Trump people were not having much influence in terms of Republican primaries and so on. So 2019, I thought there was going to be a Larry Hogan or somebody challenging Trump. Then it became clear we, that we Trump, tried. We worked on that. I know. Yeah. I know, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so once it became clear that wasn't going to happen, I was talking to more, you know, I talked to Evan McMullen, so I'm going to talk to people like you. Once it became clear that wasn't going to happen, I did think by like December 2019, huh? These guys are all in really good positions. They have, they have Washington Post columns and New York Times columns and MSNBC columns. They're in a great position to really impact the Democratic primary. The Democratic voters want to know who can win. If Steve Smith and Nicole Wallace say Joe Biden will you know will get my vote, that'll help. And so so then like once once Sanders won those early primaries, 
then it really went into action in a way that even I did not think of where I saw I, you know, Tim Miller, I saw things Tim Miller wrote in his pieces appear in other pieces written by pro Biden liberals, sometimes (laughs) attributed to Tim Miller, sometimes not, but it was sort of obvious that the never Trump people had, you know, had taken advantage smartly of their position within the democratic party and said, guys, we just watched Donald Trump take over our party don't let this happen with Sanders. And that was a very strategic, I'm not, I think it was probably intentional at times, but I'm not sure Jennifer Rubin sat down and was like, let me change the Democratic Party. I think there's a lot of things happened where the never Trump folks had no influence in one party. But part of it is the Democratic Party is more diverse in all kinds of ways. It's more racially diverse. It's more religiously diverse. And also it's more inclusive of other people. So it's not surprising to me a new faction could emerge in the Democratic Party and shape it because the Democratic Party, like BLM, no one had, no one had heard of Black Lives Matter in 2015. And now it kind of runs the Democratic Party. Right. And so, so the Democrats are more porous in a certain way. And I, so I wasn't surprised by that. I, I have also been surprised, honestly, by how Biden has governed in terms of moving left. And I think COVID is a big part of that. But I also think that like the AOC crowd, I think, is underappreciated in how in their strategy and how smart they are and strategy, obviously, as I meant to say, and how they can move stuff. And I think that at this point, it's like AOC's agenda is not passing. Bernie's idea is not being passing. These people are not dumb. Senator Warren knows if she keeps saying $50,000 in student debt may be, should be forgiven, Biden might go from 10 to 25. That's the goal. These people are trying, all they're doing, like the people on the Democratic left are in a pretty obvious and clear Overton window exercise constantly. Like when Biden's released his infrastructure plan and AOC was like, it's not big enough. What else was she going to say? Of course she said that. If she had said, I would have been shocked if she said it was good. You know, I mean, like, so I think these people are in in a strategic exercise that is pretty smart. And I think Biden has been more amenable than their ideas than they expected, in part because this is a smart dance. They come out with extremely left ideas. Old man Joe comes out with his slightly left ideas and the media is like, look how moderate he is. This is a great dance. They should. I mean, I think it's really working so far. Yeah, I do too. And, and I think that you hit on an important distinction and one that I, I, I tried to tell reporters a lot um, during the campaign, but that they were always very skeptical of, um, which is that I, I uh, you know, without sounding too self-aggrandizing, I, I do think that the Never Trumpers um, have influenced the Democrats on politics. Yes. More than policy. Right. And I think that uh, that, you know, um, uh, taking a more aggressive posture towards Trump, uh, thinking about reining in some of the making people more conscious about reining in rhetorical excesses, you know, in ways that like, you know, we know how Republicans think. We know how they're going to use this against you. Like, is this really worth it? Um, you know, that sort of strategic thinking, the types of things that people talk about on MSNBC panels. Right. Like, I, I just <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think so. That the idea that there are swing voters, there was a view on the left that swing voters yes. weren't really real for like a while. And, and I think there there are fewer swing voters than there were in 92, but there are definitely swing voters and they do matter. 
So, yeah, swing voters are the reason that Joe Biden's the president. That's what I was going to say. Uh, next. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was in a couple key districts, right? So, so absolutely. So, yes, I, I think that that we kind of reformed that conversation a little bit. You know, I, I would often hear, like, you know, I'd go on MSNBC and like hear from some congressional Democrats <laughs> offense who's like, "I've been telling the DCCC right. this." You <laughs> know what I mean? Like, we yeah. should do this, right? So, I think that from a from a strategery, uh, George W. Throwback um, standpoint. That, that, that definitely has had an impact. I, I, I don't think it's had a policy impact. And I think the big reason is that is because most of the never Trumpers don't have policy litmus tests that they've, that they're demanding, you know, like they genuinely, and I think that a lot of liberals just don't believe that this is true. Just genuinely wanted Donald Trump out and like felt like he was such this threat to democracy and think that the continued Trumpism in the party is such a threat to the fabric of the country that it's like, you know, we have, we already knew we were making sacrifices on abortion when we changed sides, right? Like, like, you know, it's not as if we're trying to pull people back. Right. And so, so, you know, from from a from a strategy standpoint, you know, I think that there are times where it's like, hey, this policy that you're proposing is not going to go over well with voters that are gettable for you. I, I think that we're getting a hearing on some of that kind of stuff. But, but it wasn't this sort of policy debate, whereas meanwhile, the left wing activists are all, are pretty much all policy organized, you know, oriented there. There are a handful of lefty activists on Twitter who, who you know, are tact- who are all tactics, no policy. But it's mostly a policy influence that they're pushing, and I think that's what you're why what you're seeing, you know, Biden basically appeal to them, not on, not give them everything they want. But I, I think that's the key distinction between. So what's happening. I remember I didn't know this. Like I remember I talked to you for my piece on never Trump Republicans and like it ran in like March. During the primary, March 2020, Iran, April yeah. 2020, one of those. And I asked you, what are, you know, now that now that you're part of the Biden coalition, Tim, what do you want? And you were like, nothing. I don't, you know, I was like, what is your list? Of, I was thinking about this from most groups in the Democratic coalition have a list of seven demands. The black people want this. The planned parenthood <laughs> people want this. You know, and so you know this. I was like, the never Trump people must have their list of demands. And you were like, I just want Trump out. I don't, I don't have any demands. You know, I, and you were like, I prefer, and you were like, I think Biden should move right on abortion, not for me, but because it'll actually help with swing voters. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, I think that's probably right. And so I, that surprised me. I do, I mean, like, even like, I do think yesterday is going to test this a little bit, but not too much. Like, I, I do think my guess is, I haven't done a poll of this yet. My guess is the never Trump crowd generally wants does not like this pullout from Afghanistan and would have preferred Biden not take this policy. But I don't think that's such a big break that's going to hurt him long term with the never Trump crowd is my impression. But I do think that's but I do think that the sort of deal with Biden is don't go too far sort of left on foreign policy is part of the deal. Is that right? Or is that wrong too? I just don't think so. I look, no, we've no, been no, in Afghanistan no. for 20 years, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's a I, like, yeah, we, there's a debate about the policy. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Like, look, yeah, on balance, you know, do, you know, do, do if you polled the never Trumpers who, who voted for Biden, you know, would they be for staying in Afghanistan? Probably. I don't, I don't know. But, um, but I, this is just not a litmus test issue anymore for people. You know what I mean? I just, it just isn't. What I, are you and I think that with curious. Biden yeah. on foreign policy, we're getting what we want, which is, you know, this sort of fundamental mental belief that America is a force for good in the world, right? I think that it would have been different if you had burnt, right? Like it would be different if you had a leftist Democratic president who, you know, was an isolationist in their own right, right? You know, but uh, I, I think that, you know, we well, we may not get everything we're looking for in foreign policy. Biden is much more in this kind of bipartisan 
you know, tradition of, of, you know, believing America, you know, uh, you know, American values are net plus in the world and, and that we should engage, um, and that we should care about, va- uh, uh, you know, our values like that. Like that's a big upgrade for us over Trump. So no, I, look, I think that some of the stuff, right. Like the, the abortion thing is like my point to you back then was I, I wish that he would just throw a bone on, mm-hmm. you know, going back to see, save legal and rare, right? Like, even if it's like rhetorical, right? Like it's avoiding some of the extreme excesses, right? And I think that it's not just that issue. I think that there are going to be other issues where maybe, you know, obviously defend the police is sort of the most, the, the most obvious one. Um, but, but on a lot of this stuff, I just think that the voters really reprioritize the types of I think that there's this tiny sliver of never Trump voters who just hated him so much and are still rock ribbed conservatives and are never going to really vote for Democrats anyway. Right. Like, but I, I'm not talking about those people, the people that voted for Democrats in the midterms in 2018, the people who voted for Joe Biden, I, like, you know, do they wish that there were, you know, that he kept the Keystone pipeline? Yeah. Right. Like, do they wish that, that there were, you know, he was trimming regulations that the, you know, that the corporate rate only goes to 25 instead of 28 sure but are any of these litmus tests no they've reprioritized what they care about and they care about protecting american democracy and what we were talking about earlier about us being a multiracial pluralistic society where everybody um, is respected and and that's the priority now and so and that i think gives biden a lot of room to run um in a way that kind of benefits him politically for keeping the coalition together and I think having like I've you know I've been reading David Brooks a lot this because I was curious like when are the I've been sort of waiting when are the Never Trump people going to break up with Biden over what, and I think I didn't sufficiently appreciate some of those people have moved now they're not look they're not grading Biden on the same yeah as as long as Biden portrays you know Biden is, is trying to unify the country and be center left and not extreme left and as long as he right. stays in that general vein they're going to be comfortable with that, which I don't think I fully appreciate. Yeah, I had a different reporter, political reporter, called me and said, "Who, who, what, never, what, who do never Trumpers want in the cabinet and at the staffing level?" <laughs> I just laughed. I was like, "You think we give a shit if Meg Whitman is the Commerce Department secretary? Like, we just want to get rid of this asshole." But you know, she's like, "That's not what all the Democratic groups I call have a specific list of people that they want in the cabinet." And I'm like, "We are honestly like, we 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 couldn't care less if Cindy." It's McCain interesting to, or- to have a Democratic group that doesn't have a list of demands because almost all of them. <laughs> have very precise list of demands. Um, okay, final thing. Do you have any gossip for us about, you know, I mean, you're in the you're in the kind of Nate Silver, you know, sort of genius bubble of doom. You know, <laughs> do you have any sort of gossip or interesting little funny stories about um, about, you know, behind the scenes of 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 the Nate Silver universe? I mean, were you mentioned that there's not a sort of what is it Trump but more smarter is that what you said <laughs> that doesn't exist competent trumpism yeah you know we are as a site probably the leading boosters of the ron DeSantis campaign you know whether <laughs> whether you think he's like good for the country and i think there are a lot of things he's doing that are not ideal um we have you know we ha- we did this like draft of i wasn't involved in this personally but we did this draft of like who would you bet on now for 2024 because we cover 2024 pretty aggressively already yeah. and so ron DeSantis was i think first behind, other than trump was first we have written about him a lot we're very interested in ron DeSantis. so we have a divide in the staff where a few people think there's a potential for a nikki haley um, Tim Scott, kind of more traditional Republican, and the other people who think 
please, we did this with Rubio and Jeb already. Shut <laughs> please. it. You know, it's going to be between Christy Nome, Ron DeSantis, and Greg, Ab- Greg, Greg Abbott if he gets a little more crazy, but he needs yeah. to ramp up the crazy a little more first. <laughs> and so we are sort of debating that a lot. Kind of That's kind of, we are obsessed with 2024. Uh, and we've also had, I mentioned on a podcast, you know, I'm, I follow what Kamala does very carefully. People were like, we got to talk about that. Is she running? What do you think? You know, I was like, and yeah, honestly, I think Kamala, Terry McAuliffe, and until recently, Andrew Cuomo were all sort of informally running for 2024. And I think about 2024 more than, and that should be all the 2024 discussion you have on your podcast for a while. That was <laughs> yeah, a lot. Oh my God. I was like, can we just enjoy this for a second? I do no, have to say, I, one, I, that you mentioned it though. I, that you mentioned, I do think that the liberal, we were talking earlier briefly about how, you know, giving oxygen to Trump and how this is a stupid argument because Trump already has maximum oxygen among his voters. The Ron DeSantis thing, I do sometimes wonder, and maybe Nate Silver is the person. I, I've been thinking that there's a Ron DeSantis resistance inside the liberal media and that they're doing everything they can to help Ron DeSantis <laughs> by continuing to attack we him. We him a lot, yes. <laughs> oh, so I wanted to bring up one thing on your end. You might have asked your question? Okay, no, no, please. Turn, turn the so, tables. Put me in the chair. So the piece you wrote, you wrote something right after the election. Like, I write a lot about you know, race, I'm black, I write about race, it's, yeah. you know, but I think identity is like a, a core part of like who we are. And like, a, people have a lot of different identities, like, you know, well, I'm from Louisville, I live in Louisville, I'm black, I'm a journalist. So what's it been like for you? Because you've made these two big changes, you went from being a Republican, to being an independent, you also went from being um a, a sort of a operative strategist, pick your word, to sort of being in writing. What have those two been like for you and which one's been harder? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, I also went from being a closeted gay to an open, openly gay American. And when so, that, I don't know. When was that? I don't, uh, so yeah, I so that you. happened in 07, right? So okay. it was yeah. right after I was on McCain. So I'd, I'd been in Republican politics a little bit. Um, and so I think that made it easier for me to make this change, obviously, because that was such a hard thing. Coming out of the closet was so hard. And um and doing it, I felt so great afterwards. <laughs> honestly, like I felt this uh, sort of weight lifted off my shoulders, and and I just I felt like it kind of honestly changed my whole demeanor. It made me more, um, uh, I, I think, honest because I wasn't carrying this lie around all the time um, with me, and um, just more comfortable in my own skin. And so I, I sort of I, t- I kept trying to look back on that experience as I was thinking about all of this, and. Um, you know, in some ways I wanted to do it quicker. Um, but I felt like, I felt like the right thing to do was to, I, I, I weighed this, right? Like whether or not, um, I should, after 2016, I should just say, screw it and go try to make some, do something completely new in my life or whether I needed to kind of ride this fight out that I'd been in. Right. And, and I, and I, and I had a, at least I had a couple of dread. I just asked everybody in my life what they thought. And I had one drink with a guy who really it kind of just stuck with me. He's like, I mean, you've just put so much into fighting Trump and like to walk off the field right now and go do something else just seems like such a mistake. And so, um, um, I, and that kind of stuck with me and I was like, okay, well, I need to keep my operative hat on, keep my Republican hat on because like you mentioned with Larry Hogan, like I thought that the first line of this fight is going to be within the Republican party. I knew it was an unlikely fight, but I thought it was one that was worth doing. And, and even throughout that whole time, I was, I just knew it, it wasn't a fit, right? Like I just knew I wasn't in my own skin anymore. And so, um, this change 
has been really uh, great so far. I guess when it was that right after the election in November, so it's only been about five months. And, you know, it is still kind of weird to be a journalist, um, calling people and doing interviews, especially with my old friends in politics. And, I'm, and, they're, uh, and they're like, I have to be off the record. Like, that's just such an awkward, you know, <laughs> right. I, it was just like kind of like these old, the, the original things after coming out of the closet, but like, like oh, I'm my boyfriend, you know, like there's these new words and language you have to use when you sort of change identities. Um, and um, so that's been a little bit awkward. Um, but but it's felt really good. Um, and, and I think that like my main, because I went through that, I think was coming out of the closet and because I went through this with sort of losing the Republican party, which was such a big part of my identity. I, mean, I, I worked on campaigns age 16, very like my first campaign job, I was 16. And so like, this has been my whole life. Um, and, you know, I just uh, that was, I think, my big in the, not my big because of Sarah and all the other people who are involved. But our big insight in our VAT was that like that, like these videos helped people make that transition. Right. And helped people like deal with the fact that like this is not just a change of a vote. Like this is a change of something that happened in my in my identity. And, and it, in the end, most people said it just felt like such a relief and they felt like they were really kind of able to be fully themselves, fully honest. And so I know that feels sometimes weird. For non-political people, This I think that article feels kind of weird, right? Because it's like they don't think that much about who they vote for. Um, but for people for whom political party has been such a part of their you know identity it was it is a big shift it's an ongoing shift and um i don't know man it's, it's, it felt really great you gain some friends or you gave you i assume you've lost some relationships and changed yeah. over this period right i absolutely have lost relationships and you know i we got i got married during all of this um and you know i had no shows to the wedding like over trump basically oh, wow. right um so people you've known a long time people have been your weddings people yeah, you've known politics, i mean not not in my high school and college, you know what i mean like sure. I, I thank god there's a lot and you're in louisville so i'm sure you're like this too but there's a lot of people in politics who like don't have i always thought it was weird when i'd go to political colleagues weddings and everybody there seemed like they were in politics yes. I was like, don't, you have, <laughs> don't you have any real life don't you have a real life um <laughs> So like I'm I'm lucky to have like a, a whole you know really great group of kind of friends and family that that aren't that are basically apolitical um, um, to varying degrees, and um, uh, so you know it wasn't that big of a deal right uh, in that sense. But but yeah, people that I know in politics, my close friends in Republican campaigns, like people that you know were in my Republican you know friend group, um, just just didn't just didn't make the trip and so you know um it's so funny i was like to think about going back to 2007 me coming out of the closet to be like i'm gonna have a gay wedding and people aren't gonna show you know i would have assumed it would have been like (laughs) anti-gay you know whatever older family or something and it's like no all of them showed and uh it was people that were mad at me for saying no to donald trump who didn't show so it's such so such such a weird experience but yeah that is um it's uh, you know, I think that it's something that a lot of folks went through through this. And and my big message to anybody who, who like my lesson for, through all of this is like, make don't get stuck because of inertia or because you feel like you have to be attached to this identity that you attached yourself or that other people attached to you. Like the best, like literally the best decisions I ever made in my life were, were changing my identities when I needed to to do it. To be honest with myself, like coming out of the closet opposing Trump, like these are the best decisions I ever made. And so. Um, you know, hopefully that can can give people some, you know, a little bit of kick in the ass if they need one. One more about the, yeah. about the racial stuff. Though. So I'm my wife is white and we're raising a biracial child. And that's definitely making me think about racial issues sort of differently in that, like, um, 
you know, um, I, I, you know, I'm trying to figure, you know, I, I found my, I found myself asking my wife, like what you guys are German and what else? And so how do we sort of develop <laughs> that part? You know, I did, you know, I, you know, sort of like things I hit, you know, and, and she asked me questions like that too. Cause like, you know, I sort of like, I am black, but that's sort of just how I was raised is who I, I don't really think about it, but when the world we're in now, I'm much more conscious. You know, we went to church, we went to a black church, we just went to a church and that was the church we went to. Right. Dad was the pastor. wasn't, we didn't really think about it in the racial context of it. And now like, the like I, I would not say I'm probably more woke myself than I was maybe six or seven years ago about like you know like a lot of the places I worked at when I was coming up were pretty white I was the only black person there and I didn't think about how that happened why that happened what does that mean how that changed my outlook and now I'm thinking about it more so talk about your parenting experience I'm just curious about that as raising yeah a, a, boy a, I just, I, yeah. gosh I would like to turn it on you we could do a whole episode on on yeah. parenting uh, because I I'm still I'm navigating in the dark so. So, you know, so, you know, we adopted a black daughter um, a, a few years ago, which obviously has also impacted my my POV on this. And uh, I, I loathe Trump before we had uh, made the adoption. So, um, you know, obviously I was already headed down this path. But, you know, watching him doing the send send her back, send them back stuff. And, you know, obviously had an increased salience for me. Um I don't I, I don't know. The, the parenting thing, I think it's gonna be tough and interesting. I think the nice thing is that. That, you know, I, I don't want to be blinded in the same way that we were by the Obama victory to think that, like, you know, time heals all and everything gets inexorably better. But I, I do think that, you know, I don't even know. this. She's not even going to be a Zoomer. Whatever the next generation after the Zoomers are is, mm-hmm. is you know, going to ha- live in a, in a country that is, you know, much more you know, diverse and integrated than, than the one that I grew up in, obviously in suburban Denver. Um, and so I'm just trying to be really conscious of it. You know, we live in Oakland, like our community and, and, and the little school that she's going to go to in September is like a United Nations. Um, you know, um, like we're, uh, in some ways, like I carry this kind of, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but some, this is something that I think about is like, we're, we're gentrifiers basically in Oakland. So I kind of think about that, um, 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 which has, which carries, uh, some, uh, weighty negative things that I, I try, I try to think about and navigate, but also is nice for, it's good for her. Right. Because like, cool. this is just a very diverse community. Like we're, we're kind of like, I guess white majority, uh, majority minority neighborhood, um, that we're in. Um, and you know, I think about that if we decide to move, like we're very conscious of that, what kind of schools she's going to be in. I think about, you know, stuff that I didn't do, like we got to get her into a dance troupe um, with other <laughs> black kids because yeah. otherwise she's going to start dancing like me and me and my husband, which is not, um, you know, which is not going to look very cool among her peer group. So, uh, you know, I, that I, I'm, I'm just kind of working through all of that now. And it obviously has impacted my political thinking, you know, just because you become more aware of all this stuff. Like you said, I just like growing up, I just didn't think about, I, I just, it was, it was, you know, kind of racism by um, omission. You know, I it was just like I didn't think about it. I grew up in 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 suburban Denver, right? I'm mean, I from Columbine. I mean, I, you can't get more white than the community that I grew up in, right? And so, um, you know, I, I'm just trying to make sure that that's not her experience growing up and then we'll you know kind of take things think take things as they come and just try to try to be open and honest about it i mean that's why, like my big takeaway through all of this is that like you have to be candid you know and um you know my uh, obviously my experience is in, in the closet is going to be very different and and you know she, it's more challenging for her for a bunch of different re- ways um but like 
and the similarity of like pretending like it does, it isn't there isn't the answer, right? Um, so it's just dealing with it and um, and being honest about it and talking about it in candor and I don't know. Hopefully we'll figure it out. If you if you have any if you have any um, uh, you know uh, moments of clarity um, in your <laughs> as, as with you as you and your wife deal with this, please please share. I will. Um, well, thanks for having me. Like, I, like you mentioned, I've been supportive, not in the sense that, you know, like I'm a journalist, so I try, I'm trying to say sure. who for who and so on. But it's just that like, you know, I think Tim has done something really important, which is like he's doing, you know, he, you know, getting into writing is hard and your writing, I think, is very sort of um, direct, and frank and raw and personal and interesting at times. And I think that more people like, you know, the podcast is great, but I love your pieces because you really bring a lot to the table and are willing to say a lot and willing to concede that you're wrong about some things or you've rethought some things. And I think more of us in this journalism politics space should be doing that. And I tried to read a piece last month where I wrote about, you know, some of the things I got wrong in the Trump era and how I'm trying to improve and how I'm trying to diversify my media sources and get smarter. And I think you, what you're doing is I hope a model for other people in terms of sort of being open to rethinking their, their views, not necessarily right or left, but it's rethinking what they're doing, rethinking their professions, rethinking how to do this. We, we need journalism more than ever in this time, but we need it to be better, I think. And I think you and the work you're doing has been a model for some of the, what we, how we can improve. Well, man, thank you so much. I didn't learn those bad journalism school lessons that you guys all had to learn, <laughs> right? Really I right. can just, I could, <laughs> so I don't have to shed, I don't have to shed any of that baggage. Um, uh, back at you, uh, Mutual Admiration Society here. Uh, please come back uh, to the Warwick Podcast or, you know, we can find some other venues to uh, to collaborate. Um, your uh, your perspective is, is, is a really big added value for us, for our, for our listeners. Um, I will be back tomorrow with a, another really special guest. You'll like, Peace.